I wanted it to feel young. Like, I could have went out and hired a bunch of X per se people who are older and a little bit more boring. But people are coming for a tasting menu that's run by a young person. And because of that, I didn't want even people who had too much like Michelin star experience because I didn't want people who were so stuck in their ways. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Flynn McGarry, New York City chef and the subject of a new documentary, Chef Flynn. Also on the show, we have longtime New York restaurant publicist Stephen Hall. But Matt, what was it like talking to Flynn? What did you guys talk about? Flynn McGarry is a misunderstood guy. Like, he was a boy wonder chef. He was on the cover of New York Times Magazine. Some people questioned his abilities, but let's put it to rest. This guy can fucking cook, and it's amazing. He hosted Pop-Ups when he was 12. He worked at Alma for three years. He was homeschooled. He was dedicated to the craft. Now he's opened a restaurant in New York called Gem, which received two stars from the New York Times and is probably one of the buzziest restaurants in the city. Here's Matt talking to Flynn. Flynn McGarry, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's so fun to have you in. I wanted to ask you just about your age right away because it's you can't deny it. But I don't want this conversation to be focused on that because I, I've known you for a while and I, I think your food is as good as anyone. So I just, but I had to make that statement. Yeah. <laughs> it always needs to be said. It always needs to be said, but we're not going to dwell on it. Great. Um, I watched your film Chef Flynn. I, I think it's a it's a cool documentary. It's coming out in theaters um, soon. It'll be on Hulu. But um, there's a scene in there where you're taking the subway uh, in Los Angeles. You're taking the subway and you're going to Alma for your job. And uh, this really crushed, um, I think will crush a lot of these perceptions that you're like, quote unquote, rich kid from like the hills of Hollywood. You're not. You're like working at a restaurant and you're taking the subway in Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, I mean, the subway was mostly like my mom would drive me, but it was I I was like, why does no one take? I mean, obviously no one takes the subway in L.A. I was going to work at. Like during rush hour, so I was like, I, I live kind of near it, and I was like, it's down. I, it was the perfect like thing, and it was cheap, and it was like twenty minutes. I still don't understand why people don't take the subway now, because like literally, it was like it would take me twenty minutes to take the subway, or it would take me an hour and a half to drive. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, I was always working, and that was always kind of what I did, and. To me, though, that was also sort of a way of having a little bit more freedom opposed to, like, my mom having to drive me to work. I I had sort of the ability to kind of, like, go by myself, Uh um, especially when I I couldn't drive yet. Yeah, no, but I I just wanted to be said that, like, you you, you were working Alma. Like, you're working there. Like, it's like a a job. It wasn't, like, some weird, like, thing for the camera. I was working there. I I mean, I worked there for almost three years full time. And I, I mean, sort of, like. I would stage places, but I also always had in Los Angeles, I always had like a job. Like before that, I was at this place, uh, Ray's in Stark Bar for like a year, and I was at Alma for three years. And I would kind of pop out uh, every once in a while to go work at uh, Madison Park or something. And all the chefs were very kind of supportive of that. They were. Um, but always, sort of when I was in Los Angeles, had a full time job. And uh, to be clear, how old were you when you were working at Alma? I started when I was there when I was 14. So you're you're homeschooled, right? Yeah. That's how you got th- you're able to work a full time job and exactly. do school. So you yeah. took like correspondence classes. 
Um, but what was that time like at Alma? I mean, what were you what were you learning then? Were you were you working the line busy Saturday night? Yeah, I mean, Alma to me was uh, that was like the place that I really sort of spent the most amount of time and learned not just like skills and things, but how to sort of work in a restaurant every single day. Um, I went there and I started as the meat cook. And it was when Alma went from doing, like when they got Best New um, Restaurant from Bon Appetit, it was like you're doing a la carte, like 150 people a night. It's a very crazy time. Crazy busy And that's place. right when I came in there and came in as like the meat cook. And it was like, that. it was really the thing where it was like get, got thrown into like mm-hmm. the craziness. I, I had worked a little bit kind of cooking meat before that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it was like we had like five different proteins on the menu for a hundred something people a night. And learned how to like cook like elegant food in a very sort of fast paced restaurant like that. Um, and then sort of would uh, kind of, they treated me sort of like the tournant in the restaurant. So I would kind of pop around every station. And if someone like as any restaurant, when there's kind of high staff turnover, I was always sort of like, Oh, I kind of made it a point to know all the stations. And, and so I would go work pastry if I had to, or sort of can, could hit every um, section. And, I mean, to me, really, they learned about kind of that way of, like, every cook knew every station and, and kind of you need to know every Classic single. training, brigade-style training, learning different steps in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, in the film, you, you, you say uh, hype only gets you so far. I mean, you had a lot of hype around you with uh, the New Yorker article, um, uh, your first article when you were 13, I believe. And then the you were in the cover of the New York Times magazine, um, and then there were plenty of, of thoughts about that. But then, but then hype only gets you so far. What does that mean exactly to you? Well, I mean, I think especially in, in restaurants, it's like it, the literal thing is it gets people in the door. But then the second they're in the door, you have to actually deliver. Like it, the, which, I mean, that's why like hype is, I think, great for a lot of reasons. Of It brings people to you. It's also bad for a lot of reasons because they come with, preconceived notions and these sort of expectations but i mean it's sort of like it's it's a thing where it's like you no matter what they read no matter how many things they're they're in your hands in in the restaurant and you have to deliver and i think it's the thing where people even i've had this for so long where it's like they're reading about the young kid whatever and Mm -hmm. they might be coming because of that but they still need to leave satisfied and full and and have eaten a, a meal that was delicious and had great service and all of those things still need to happen mm-hmm. regardless of how much or how little hype there is. Did you learn these fundamental skills at Alma or, or at EMP or is there like a, a, a time in your life when these when these skills all came together? I mean, it, it was really like ev- everywhere. Like, yeah. I mean, and that's what, that's the way I wanted to learn. I wanted to not just go work in one place my entire time and only learn it there. I wanted to see the ways that they cook at EMP, the ways they cook at Alma, the ways that they cook in, in Scandinavia, like all these different kind of ways. And then I could, from there, knowing all these different techniques and, and mindsets towards it, then I could figure out what my food was. And so you really wanted to open in New York City, not in L.A. Yeah. And that was a conscious decision. You you talk about it in the film quite a bit. And there's a little bit of uh, a reference to pop-ups in New York, but there there isn't, Gem is not open yet. So 
why do that to yourself? Because I feel like L.A. would be a slightly softer landing. You're well known there. Um, obviously, it's a great food city. There's so much press there for people making the pilgrimage, and you would have had a successful career there. Why go to New York, which is like the opposite? I mean, I, it's so insanely hard to have a restaurant here that I figured, like, this is the time to do that. Like, to me, the the first one, I, I'm, I'm as has been proven very easily. I'm not one to sort of ease into things. I, If I want to do something, I want to fully do it. And so to me, it's sort of like I would rather have the first restaurant I have or the first few restaurants I have be in the hardest place to exist and, and go through those experiences and deal with that kind of stuff. And then everything else is easy. It's like I, yeah, everyone I know who you open in New York and then any, every, you're like everywhere else is so easy compared to this. I would rather do that hundred times over than work my way up to it. I've never really thought that way career-wise. I've always sort of thought like kind of throw yourself into the fire and like either you're going to f- succeed or you're going to fail. And that's kind of what I love about New York is it's very like you can't just glide by. You're no either, way. You're either killing it or you fail and then you can go somewhere else. I mean there's this fearlessness in you. I, you see it in the film like and you do you do so much press before opening New York. You do you do TED Talks and you do you go around the world talking about what you represent and you're so calm and now you, then you move to New York and you open in New York in the toughest city. I mean and is this like whole calmness is it just how you are or do you have this internal struggle all the time? I mean, I'm not going to say I'm entirely calm, but I, I think the great thing about working in restaurants is it really prepares you how to deal with stress and how to deal with pressure and all these things because the amount of stress and pressure that is on you on a daily basis as far as, like, everything getting done on time, like, the, the sort of – I mean, just restaurants are so stressful and, and – I mean, I've been doing that for so long now that it sort of prepared me for, like – everything's easy like it's it's like the thing of like yeah like you all talking interviews all this kind of stuff could inherently be daunting but it's like i i have so many other things to worry about that it's like it, there's no world where that is like a stressful thing it doesn't catch up to you i mean in the film there are several scenes of you just hunched over a laptop looking at lists yeah and that i mean that's like a theme all the time yeah and it's just like you so you're just saying like just to be clear like in the restaurant world and especially having achieved such um experience at such a young age it really gets you ready for life yeah i mean it, it, that was how i like my form my most formative years were spent in environments that were that kind of stressful and in, and in places that were filled with pressure and and all this kind of stuff and that just prepared me for kind of the reality of it. I mean, definitely the opening a restaurant is a kind of different kind of set of skills and different pressures to have than just like being ready for service. And but I'm not. It, it's not so much that it it taught me like how to just like about stress. It taught me how to deal with and process it and deal and with people it. and all yeah. and people and kind of. I I definitely don't think that if. If I didn't work in in kitchens so much at the same time as this, I would have be, been able to deal with it in such a kind of level headed way. Um, but I mean, the, yeah, that the thing was like I was always focused on the food and and dinners and the restaurants I was working in. That while everything kind of was going on, that would sort of fall in the back because, like, I could be doing an interview, but I'm more stressed out. Like, if the fish is gonna like be there on that day and. That's always sort of been the focus, um, and so it kind of helps 
kind of put everything in perspective. Uh, speaking of reality, I mean, you, you clearly recorded by reality shows and you were coming up in an era when the celebrity chef and reality was actually more viable than, than now. I think it's kind of actually passed. But you said no to all reality shows, right? Yeah. And was that was that a hard decision? I mean, there's a, like back then, like good chefs were beco- were on Top Chef. Now, I don't really know. But was that tough? No. I mean, it's tempting, um, especially like it's tempting when there's a lot of interest in people interested. But I've always been very aware of control and the image that I'm kind of putting out in the world. And the second that I met with someone and knew that these people were controlling the way that I'm presenting myself at such a young age in such an early point in my career that I didn't want to do that because I, I, I knew that if I didn't have the control of how I was putting myself out there, that it could be kind of put in a completely different direction that I didn't want to go in. Yeah, and then it would be a soundbite and it'd be a cliche and yeah. you, you're much more thoughtful than that. Let's talk about Jem. I, I, you know, it's your mom, mother's mag. It's her name spelled backwards. Who came up with that idea? That was actually my mom's idea. <laughs> <laughs> I love your your mom is great in the documentary. I think she's clearly a, a, such an inspiration to you and, and she was like the manager of your pop-up when you're doing it at your house. And yeah. What is her role now in the restaurant? She doesn't have one, which is, <laughs> I think, the healthiest thing for everyone. Okay. I mean, she, yeah, the, once I moved to New York, she kind of stepped out and she never was in the restaurant industry or wanted to be. She was just doing it to kind of help out. Helping her son out. And the, your sister, though, is involved, right? She's a partner of yours. She's the legal owner because I can't get a liquor license. Uh, <laughs> is she like working service, though? No, no. She signs things and sort of does helps in yeah. that way. But on the service aspect, she isn't involved. And so when I had dinner there, I'm, I'm, you know, you're young, but I noticed the rest of the staff is also pretty young. I mean, everyone's probably under the age of 30, I would, I would guess. Yeah. Um, what's that like? I mean, that's, that's not typical for New York. I mean, it's not, it's not, I mean, it's definitely a variety of ages typically when you walk into a restaurant and I'm going to say a two star New York times restaurant too. I actually need to say that again, like well-reviewed restaurant. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted it. I wanted it to feel young. Like I could have went out and hired a bunch of X per se people who are older and a little bit more boring, but people are coming for a tasting menu that's run by a young person. And because of that, I didn't want even people who had too much like Michelin star experience because I didn't want people who were so stuck in their ways. I wanted where we try to do different things in service and, and try to change uh, like we've had people who came from EMP and it didn't work out because they had this mindset that was instilled in them of how you should work service or how you should do this. And we're like, that's not how we want to do things. So it kind of made sense to have only kind of younger people who are more open to new things. And I mean, it it definitely takes a little bit more training and a little bit more sort of being more hands-on on on my side. Um, But I think that's, it's all sort of worth it for, I think there's a really, truly unique thing that comes from a staff of people who are all very good at what they do, but also very youthful and not burnt out and excited about what they're doing and and passionate and kind of like... Yeah, it was fun. It's an open kitchen. You can see everyone kind of being very focused and intense and you're very intense, but then there's moments of levity and you're, you're smiling and joking, especially at the end. I did the nine o'clock seating, so near the end of the day, you're clearly having fun. I mean... But you are the boss, right? I mean, it, it, there's moments. When was the last time you had to really be the boss? I mean, it it happens in a very sort of 
casual way. And I mean, it is the thing where it's sort of like we I want people to have fun. I want people to enjoy their jobs and I, I want it to be a place for you like everyone you work with and everyone hangs out. But there's a certain point at which like it needs I have to reel people in every once in a while and, and try to do it in a very sort of respectful way. And I think it, it is this thing where it's like we can all enjoy ourselves because there is this overarching feeling. Everyone knows that like what I say goes and in the end of the day, it's my decision. It's it's my restaurant. And we can have as much fun as we want as long as that continues to happen yeah. and as long as people continue to listen to that. And the second that that doesn't happen, then we don't have to have fun. And like, and there's a lot of places that I've worked and the places that I really liked were not places that were completely serious all the time. The places that were serious when they needed to be serious and when everything was going well and everything, every, like if all the food's being done perfectly, if the service is being done well and everything's getting done on time, there's no reason to not talk to each other, to not enjoy yourselves or play music. Like that only makes you miserable. It feels like Noma is probably an example of that where there's yeah, like well, moments I mean, of intensity. And then, you, of course, Renee leads this kind of mad hat kind of style. Yeah. I mean, that was really like. When I worked in, when I went to go work in Scandinavia, I worked at this place, Mimo, in Norway. And that, to me, was the closest version of a place, now a three Michelin star restaurant, where when I was there, it was a group of people who we all got everything done perfectly so we could have fun. Yeah. So we could enjoy ourselves, so we could talk all day, so we could hang out. But that can only happen if we were doing everything exactly how it should be. And if we weren't, there were days where things didn't get done. And it wasn't a fun day. And it really, but it also motivated you because it was sort of like having fun and enjoying. That's job. fine dining. You find you find people of like mind in that. Yeah, world, exactly. Right? But it, it was this thing where it's just like if everyone's doing their job well, we can have fun, and if they're not, then we're not going to have fun. And like that's the job. And like it, it's to me, I've loved that mindset of just like it's. And it it sounds weird, but kind of thinking of having fun as like a privilege of like. Being able to enjoy your job sort of is a privilege. You can go work places that are pretty miserable. Mm -hmm. And if you just do everything right and, like, do everything exactly how it's meant to be, we can have a great time. And you can have all the freedom you want, the kind of creativity. But that can only happen if everything is done exactly how I want it. What was it like a geranium working there? Less fun? No, I mean, it was was very – it was similar. It was ran in a completely different way. Yeah. Mimo was four chef de parties and, like, eight stages. Geranium was – 20 chef de parties. It overlooks the soccer stadium. Yeah, right? it was, it's a crazy place. It's I mean, amazing. it was a very interesting way that it was run because it was very like everyone was in charge of their own thing and ah. a very similar thing wherever it, it was fun. Like people were, it was a great group of people and, and we would have fun in the daytime, but a very sort of different way of, of running a restaurant. I mean, it was, Mimo was this sort of small, like uh, still rough around the edges in ways. Like our, our dry storage was five flights below the kitchen in a, only with stairs and so there was this sort of like roughness to it and and I really like there I was also at my most significantly longer um so I became a lot closer with everyone there but uh geranium to me was I mean it was such a different style of cooking that I had and that's why I went there because I didn't really want to go from Mimo to like Noma which are very similar to me food wise I wanted to go. Yeah, geranium is a little bit. It's it's stiffer. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, but it's it's more technique driven. It's yeah. more sort of classic. And I learned a ton there about like, like how to make everything look perfect and and uh, the kind of techniques that go into it, which I found very fascinating. But in the end, kind of was more drawn to places that were more sort of 
cooking like sent like yeah I, I don't think I cooked anything once at training it was a lot of molding and, and cutting and shaping and at MIMO it was like they were like you're cooking like I was like making things and purees and like there was this sort of like really like flavor first and um but I mean, I really loved seeing the kind of contrast. Of That's the cool. Those are great experiences. I want to talk about Gem and 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 also your interest in beats. Um, I know you did a Beat Wellington in the documentary early on as one of your, like when you're 13, you're doing Beat Wellington, which is a fun play, and I think has been probably copied many times. And then you're doing a 30 day aged beat in beeswax at Gem. Why are you so obsessed with beats? I kind of love this idea. Well, it's a very funny time for you to ask this because we literally took them off the menu last week. Oh, the the aged beats? Yeah. Okay. I think it was this thing where, I mean, I've been doing beats on every single menu I've had for about maybe four years. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm over Yeah, yeah, dude. Well, I mean, it's, it's a thing where it. it's not that I'm over it. It's that, I, I mean, I really loved seeing the progression of it and seeing how, like, working with one ingredient throughout seasons and throughout times and changing it and, and really kind of treating it. Like, I, I love that. I love taking an ingredient and seeing how far you can stretch it. But sort of, I feel like kind of at the end, we we are trying to change it. And it was this thing where I was like, I I was always sort of the beat dish, whatever. It would, it would come, it would kind of just like happen. Like these ideas would just sort of randomly happen. And so towards the end felt like we were trying to force it in the menu that's when you know it's time to... to and create. that's when we got yeah. rid of it. And I, I think that's sort of the healthy thing with any quote-unquote signature dish is the second that it feels forced into the menu because you people want it or people are coming back for it is the second you shouldn't do it anymore. I like the way that your menu at Gem progresses with a lot of uh, seafood and vegetables and you really aren't aren't going crazy with proteins. Is, there, is this intentional? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes from a lot of reasons. I mean, the kind of... The the biggest one being I I don't find meat interesting. <laughs> well, you told me after service I was setting up for this that you know when you eat beef and chicken and lamb and shellfish and pork in like a tasting that's like when you think about it, that's fucking gross. Well, I mean, so those are the two re- is is like the the first reason is like I I find it very sort of like when you do serve meat serve it as simply as possible because it's delicious inherently meat is delicious. I I everyone's well crave a steak, but also on the flip side of that. The amount of meals I've had where I have a foie course, a chicken course, a lamb course, a beef course, a duck course, you feel absolutely disgusting because no one is meant to mix that many proteins together. And it's, it makes so much sense in your head of like, why would you do this to your body? Mm-hmm. And I think a big thing that we try to focus on that is something I don't think a lot of tasting meat restaurants focus on is not just the flavor or the progression of the meal, but how you feel after you eat the meal. Because the amount of meals I've had ruined by how I felt after them, because it's too much food or the food's too heavy or, and like, yeah, everything was delicious and incredible, but you reach this point where you sort of start to hate it because you're so grossly full that you're kind of like resenting the next course before it even comes. Yeah, it's a shame that that's what we've kind of gone towards with tasting menus. But I I do think that there's... There's kind of a pushback, and and like auto auto mix is a good example where yeah. you don't you feel great afterwards, even though it's a lot of food. I haven't been yet, but I want to go. What, uh, what do you, what do you do for fun? Like, I mean, outside of your owning a business and running a restaurant, like, what do you do for fun? I mean, currently I have very little time to <laughs> exist outside of the restaurant. Um, I mean, I, I really, 
And it, it sounds like I really have we have fun at the restaurant. Like it's a really fun group of people. And I think we really try to show that is that like I am friends with everyone we work with. I work with and we have a really fun together. And it's it's a it's a lot of like everyone has this feeling of like we don't have time off. So we might as well have fun at work. Um I mean, also, like, I get sort of one day off a week, and I always make sure to go get dinner with a friend. I mean, that's something that when I first moved to New York, I loved so much. It's just, like, the act of going to a restaurant and having, like, a three-hour dinner. And unfortunately, I can't do that because I'm providing that for people. Mm-hmm. So I always make sure sort of, like, I have Sunday nights off, and I always on a Sunday night will go just have, like, a nice long dinner. With Where have friend. you gone recently in New York? Where are some of your spots for these Sunday night dinners out? I... I go to Four Horsemen a lot in Brooklyn. Um, I really just love that restaurant so much. It's just like a really chill place with incredible food. Um, Frenchette recently. I mean, I sort of hit this. Like, I, I, I live right by the restaurant, so I, I go to Servos a lot down there. Um, I wish Wild Air was open on Sundays. Um, yeah, I mean, like Estella. I sort of hit the same spots. Yeah, these are all spots that I feel like are similar in style and yeah. and have like really proficient and, and great execution, but have like a really fun vibe. Exactly. Yeah. Something that I, I want to go somewhere that's that's a little bit more boisterous and a little bit mm-hmm. like fun and also get like delicious food. But a place, I mean, I'm going to kind of like I'm not I'm not trying to go to a tasting menu on my day off. I want to go somewhere that's fun that is like has a great energy in the room and. Because that's what I love about New York restaurants. But also has incredible food and interesting food. Who do you call when you're like in a pinch? Like do you have a mentor? Do you have like a role model in the the food world, in the chef world who helps you out? I mean I I have a lot of really great friends who I call – like I mean closest to mentor probably like I I talk to Ari from Alma a lot about I think – I mean I I realize more and more how similar – our restaurant is to to Alma in, a, in ways of, I mean, as it's Alma part, was Alma was like yeah. when Alma first opened and was a small sort of thing, it, like with not a ton of backers and trying to do something a little bit different. And the problems that I saw arising at that restaurant are the same ones we're dealing with. So sort of talking to someone who's been through that, it, I mean, is why I talked to him a lot. Um, the guys from Contra and Wild are really good friends of mine and. Very similar thing of like have have a small restaurant kind of similar to ours and are very young in the industry and um, I talk to people like that a lot because I, I feel like they have the closest experience to what we're dealing with at the restaurant on a day to day basis opposed to talking to someone who opened a three million dollar restaurant and all these kind of things that uh, it's they have such a different outlook on all these problems and stuff that goes in. Yeah, they're running downtown restaurants. They've got similar problems. Exactly. Similar space issues, purveyor issues. Those are great, great, great guys to talk to. Um, We always ask this for our guests. Um, If you were to have a a cookbook out in the world, spend a couple years writing it, researching it, et cetera, what would it be? What is a topic that you wish to to write about? I mean, I've always thought if I do, do a cookbook, which will probably happen one day, I don't want to write a cookbook because, like, to me, reading all the Noma books, whatever else, you're never going to, no one's going to make that stuff. Like, it's inherently just like you're not going to. What I do find interesting in all those books is the way that they talk about things, the way that the chefs think about things. And so if I were to do something, I'd want to make something that's a lot more sort of kind of visual 
focused and because that to me is such a big part of what we do. Um, but also talking more about sort of the way that we think about things, the way that we at the restaurant think about ingredients and think about cooking and why we do it. Not not just like showing you this is how we do all this stuff, saying sort of like why we make things this way. Because I think that can be translated into a home a lot easier than a book for Relay or something, which I love that book so much. Like And, and I like that one to me was really interesting. But something that's sort of talking about like why chefs in restaurants like this think about ingredients this way and kind of how you can translate that in your day to day. It's a noble cause. I, it's it's a tr- it's a tricky execution because you you start talking about topics and it really the, it goes over the head of most readers. Yeah. So it would be a challenge, but I hope you can do that. That's why I'm I'm putting that off for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. I'm with it. Flynn McGarry, thanks for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me on. Here's Matt with New York City restaurant publicist Stephen Hall. Stephen Hall, founder of Hall Company, Hall PR. Thank yes. you for joining the Taste Podcast. Oh, my God, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be here. I've wanted Sit to have... opposite the table from you. Oh, it's thanks. awesome. I've wanted to have you on for a long time. You're oh. one of my, my, my buddies in the industry. I've worked with you for years. You've seen a lot, and I really wanted to get some stories. But first, I just wanted to get into your job. I think publicists and PR and, and rest in the restaurant world are, are kind of misunderstood a little bit. Um, we can talk about the changing landscape of media. Sure. We'll get into that. But also, I just want to like get into like the, the the nuts and bolts of what you do, because of course, you're trying to generate media for your clients, but you're also helping the chef and the restaurateur develop a menu. You're also helping them um, staff. You're also helping them. You're helping them market. It's not just about getting in the New York Times. No, it's not. I mean, we do a tremendous amount of work for our clients from the time that we're hired until you know, however long our contract lasts, and even then, some. I always tell everybody that I wind up doing a lot of work for free way after I've stopped working with a particular client because of the just general nature of the time frame of journalism. And you know, we don't say no to a journalist when they call and they're looking for information, whether we're working for the restaurant or not, unless. Of of course, I've had to take them to small claims court or something like that to try and get. <laughs> we can paid. talk about paying bills. But that's bills. another story. Um, but yeah, no, you know that's part of the fun part of the job is creating the brand that we're then going to go out with because some because restaurants are, are sometimes they're just like blobs of clay kind of, you know, and they need to be molded. And the chef has one vision. Maybe the owner has another vision and the mixologist has a different vision and the sommelier. And then there's the, the you know, the uh, pastry chef. And we kind of all have to, you know, sort of corral them all together so that we have one cohesive story to tell. And a lot of times we orchestrate some things going on behind the scenes when a owner is not happy with a chef. If I know somebody else that's out of work or that maybe is not happy in the job that they're in, I will orchestrate them to sort of come in. We'll do the same thing with mixologists and sommeliers. And it's kind of like it elongates our position with our clients because it makes us so valuable to them mm-hmm. that by the time the contract ends, they don't really realize it's <laughs> ended because what are they going to do without us? I think it also what you've what – you've, 
you bring to a new client is you've seen pretty much every mistake made, right? Pretty much. You know, <laughs> pretty much. I always tell that every, everybody that I'm your eyes and ears because you're in your restaurant seven days a week, you know, uh, to how many hours? 18 hours a day probably. But I'm in five restaurants a day or four or seven days a week. I'm going out constantly and seeing what else is out there. And then I, I, I said, think of me as like a carrier pigeon. You know, I come back with some news and I plop it on your doorstep and I say, these are the things that we should be doing because this is what's happening in the industry. I think I wanted to shift it away from like earned media, which is like the the press that is you receive in like magazines and on on websites because um, I haven't really covered the restaurant world in like six years, like the openings and all that. I used to cover it quite extensively, but I wanted to know like how has it changed? I've, I've noticed obviously uh, earned media is important, but there's social media and there's influencer media how are, are influencers getting people into restaurants? Are you going after influencers? We don't necessarily have to go after influencers because influencers come to us because they are always touting their platform and they want to go to a hot restaurant or a place where there's a celebrity chef because they know that people are following that and they're hoping that in return it'll be followed for them. That is a very interesting question because clearly I, I earn my living mostly on earned media because ultimately I'm a storyteller and I love telling stories and I I think that journalists tell stories great. And obviously, Instagram and other platforms are trying to find different ways to tell stories through picture or through video. And I think that that's a fantastic medium for restaurants because you really get to see it. But my problem with the influencer market and the is that they don't always respect the product that they're going in to eat. And I or that, understand. Uh, well, that they first of all, I an influencer <laughs> once said to me, "Oh, Scott, I haven't had a hot meal in five years." And I'm just like, "Well, if you put down the freaking, can I say the word? Yeah. If you put down the fucking camera yeah. and you know, like, eat the food, maybe the chef will be a lot happier of having you in the restaurant." But they, it is a. But I, I get the 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 drive, you know, and, and the desire to sort of like get the shot or get the picture or get the like and get the follower, but I want the button, the seat. So I vet all the people that approach us very, very carefully. And I am very, as you know, I don't mince words. And, you know, clearly I've said to some people, from your feet, it doesn't look like you've eaten in a week. So <laughs> what, what are you going to do with my steakhouse client? client right? who, who cares? You know, yeah. who, who that follows you cares about, you know, uh, about food? Yeah, I think social media uh, it's been fun to participate in food social media. I mean, I, I love I think the medium is really exciting, but when I want to go somewhere new, I'm not really looking at the feeds. I'm looking at the critics. I'm looking at the journalists. And I wanted to lead in with that um, to talk about the New York City critics. Sure. Really, I think we're at a cool time. We have had some critics who've been around for a little while. We have yeah, some yeah. newer critics. Like, yeah. let's just go down the list a little bit. And like, give me your thoughts on some of the critics. And I really, you you do not mince words. So like, give us your honest. So let's start with. <laughs> but the... going back to the influence, I have to say yeah, there, yeah. I have seen some people bring people in. I really have. I've yeah. seen, and those are the the people that really work at it. You know, so I have seen it work. But I think it has to be very very focused. Okay. And it can't be like one day I post about furniture, and the next day I post about food, and the next day I post about Italian food, then Japanese food. I mean, I think that 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 part of it needs yeah. to be very focused. But I have seen people work. But yes, I love. The, uh, I, love I love the I love critics. I, I you know I I really do. I love reading their reviews. Let's talk about Pete Wells. Let's start from the top. All right, I think he's probably the most influential critic in America. He's a New York Times critic. 
He's been around for maybe seven, eight years. I guess, yeah. Yeah, what do you think about Pete Wells? I like Pete Wells. I mean, I I have had many dealings with him even before he was the New York he Times. He was over at the, the he editor. Was at Food and Wine, and he was at Details, and I've always thought he was a, uh, just a lovely guy and, and someone who was really fun to be around and, um, and had a real passion for the words. You know, the one thing that I love about restaurant critics and a couple of the ones that I think that we're going to talk about – they really make you taste the food with the words, you know, and that is to me just uh, the sign of a great writer. And I just think he really makes you taste the taste the food, you know. Okay. He's got a, a this great way with prose that um, I, I it's funny and it's like ooh and a yeah, Wells is, and, we're ooh, fans of Wells great, on the Taste you know? podcast. Yeah. Uh, he knows his Korean food, too. I, I love that about He does him. know his Korean food. Well, he's been around food for a really long yeah. time. So, you know, he knows what he's talking about. And I think he's smart enough to know when he doesn't. And that, yeah. you know, with the other people that he dines out with probably and things. So I think he's he's a very I – th- I think he's a terrific guy. Now, when we go through these names, I don't expect you obviously to say negative things about these guys because why, why should we? This is a friendly place. Let's right. talk about Hannah Goldfield at The New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. Newer name, slightly newer name. What do you think about her? What's she um, you know, I first met her when she was at the New York Times in the magazine section and I thought she was a lovely person and I think and every once in a while a publication surprises me when they're not really about food my wonderful wonderful friend you know David Boulay would always say things like but does it make them hungry Stephen does it make them hungry and uh, and I always thought does the New Yorker make anyone hungry but slowly but surely because those and maybe it's because of social media or because of people being able to find the reviews I've seen the New Yorker actually bring business in and good business, you oh, know, yeah. good business. Getting like, that, that knowledgeable spot, people. like yeah. Anna's review every week, yeah. I think is a really, they've really made that a must read. And I also think that she's actually really looking at it as a critic, whereas before it was just a sort of a report on the restaurant and there wasn't like, did they like it? Did they not like it? There wasn't really any of that. But because she's a food person, she's expressing her opinion. And I think, um, I think it's great. I think it's opening up a whole new boundary for them. I'm going to go in a little bit on Adam Platt. I've I've never really been a fan of his. Uh-huh. I, I think he he's smart and he's obviously had some meals. Um, he often writes about the spaces more than the food, and I think his narratives can be a little shaky at times. Um, it's unfortunate because New York Mag is like the pinnacle of journalism, and they have an amazing food section. But I'm not going to really say much more. But what do you think about Adam Platt? <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel sorry. I feel bad in some ways because I remember, of course, when New York Magazine was a weekly publication, and now it's a biweekly publication. And when you do the math, it's only 26 issues a year, if even that. And there's be 26 restaurants opening up between now and Tuesday, so it's like. I I I think that is I think he's in a very hard position. I think he goes to a lot of places that he can't review because he just doesn't have the space. And I think he winds up reviewing the big guns because that's what maybe the New York Magazine reader wants to read about. Um, but I think that he he veers off a little bit and finds some you know cheap eats places. And I think Robin and Rob do yeah. a great job the Robs. with that. Oh yeah, my God, they do they do a great job and they are they 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 have remained secretive, which I. Think think is amazing in this day and age that they have truly remained secretive. Um, so I, 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 I enjoy his reviews. I, I like the scratch pad that he does I, because I think that it's nice to break it down as to how he arrived at his ultimate 
rating, so to speak. Yeah, it's a really well edited section. Yeah, and this very, very is much a so. really nice thing. Yeah, um, and the end of the year issue is like we used to say people would rip it out and keep it on their refrigerator. I don't know if people rip out magazine pages anymore. <laughs> I think they do. But, I do. And keep it on their refrigerator. Yeah. So, you know, obviously um, being in that year end issue is something to strive for because that's where he can talk about places that maybe he hasn't had the opportunity to review. So I think that um, that, he, that he does a pretty good job of sort of uh, running around the city. Yeah. And I think my favorite critic and Ruth Royshall, we had her on the podcast a few uh, episodes ago and she echoed this is uh, Lagaya Michon at The New York Times. I – when she writes an editorial story that have been popping up lately in T Magazine, they are always spot on. Um, she's a great – I have to agree. She's a great writer. And I think that her reviews, the, the places that she – I think that a lot of the places she chooses to go and that she chooses to review are places that the average person probably might never go to. But knowing that they're there – is really interesting. And I think that she always – and it's just – it's interesting. And she doesn't care. It's kind of like – she. I think she'd review a great hot dog stand. If she oh, could. yeah. she She's really like blind to any kind of like, like geography or any style. She really covers the world of food in New York City. You know, I think that you were talking – you mentioned Ruth Reichel before. And I think that a lot of her writing changed the way that people reviewed restaurants. And I remember – because I've been in this for quite some time. I remember when she – she reviewed a restaurant. I don't remember what the restaurant is, but her whole narrative was about following an Asian woman like from Saks Fifth Avenue down the street with shopping bags saying, where was this woman going? She was very fashionable and very stylish and she wound up in this Japanese restaurant probably somewhere in the East 40s that most Caucasian people probably haven't gone to. But Ruth followed her in and sat down and reviewed the restaurant. And I just thought, this is a this is this is like a video, you know. This is like a play. Beautiful prose, both of yeah. them yeah. are amazing. I'm tingling just thinking. <laughs> you mentioned Boulet, David Boulet, and I, 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 there's a million. We could have a whole podcast about David Boulet. We but should have him on. We, hopefully, I think I would probably have one question, and then he would talk for like <laughs> sixty minutes. Anyone who's interviewed David Boulet, I've had the pleasure of interviewing him several times. He really likes to talk. Yeah, um, he does. But he's been a longtime client. It's been quite a journey. He's shuttering Brushstroke. I just read that yesterday. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. What's going on there? Well, truth is that I haven't been involved in his restaurant since Boulay at Home opened. He's been starting to do a lot more of his traveling, like the the intention when he closed the Boulay on Hudson and Duane. The whole idea was that he was then going to, you know, travel the world and, and, and come back and forth and, and learn more about health and, and and food and how it related to people's health. So he's really started on that journey, which I think is fantastic and something that he's always wanted. And, you know, Breaststroke was open seven years and it's an economic decision, I'm assuming. He has not been a part of Breaststroke for a while. He kind of when he is, and I, I really, have, again, I haven't been involved in it for a long time, but I just found out, like everybody else, that he hadn't been involved in it in quite some time. Yeah. But Breaststroke was a great restaurant. It was a, a, a sort of a, almost a turning point for me in our career as publicists because this is the second time that I worked with Boulay because I worked with him once before. And then we came back on because I got so involved in Japan, which I think we'll talk about a little later. But I got so involved in Japan and what was going on there in the food scene that when he opened up Brushstroke and someone said to me, oh, you know, Boulay's looking for a publicist for Brushstroke. I called him up. I'm like, Ahem, you know. And uh, and then we I worked with him for, I guess, six, seven years. Oh, wow. Yeah, you did a lot of great work late in his career. But I think let's go back to David Boulay's earlier years yeah, when yeah. he was named – People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. He uh -huh. was in that issue. wasn't maybe the, the Man Alive, but he was in that issue. And he was kind of 
America's first celebrity chef, you could say, in sure. many ways. What was it like working with him early on in his career? Well, I didn't work with him back then. Yeah. You know, I only worked at like the third boulet and then the okay, and well. then this boulet. But I, I mean, I've knew, no, I've known him for a very long time because I was in the business. I was a server in 1987. You know, 1985, I started my career in restaurants and worked as a server. And you knew who David Boulet was because you were going to be part of the restaurant world. And you know, everybody talked about the white chocolate mice that you got at the end of the meal at the original boulet and the hours that you spent there and all of these things. And I got to tell you, like when he called me and, and, and I went for my first meeting with him, I was really surprised that he even was ever going to hire anybody at all. And when he did hire me, he said, do you know why I hired you? And I said, I tell you, I said, no, tell you the truth. I didn't think you were going to hire anyone at all. And he said, well, you were the only one who didn't blow smoke up my ass. And I said, well, I just wanted to meet you because I hadn't met him. And I, this was easily 10, 12 years ago, whatever. And, um, and he is, the smartest man in show business. He is someone who ba- dances to the beat of his own drum and lives his life. He is the most independent person that I have ever worked with or that I know. And he and every day he made food taste better. Every day. And he taught me so much about food and health. And I would leave there saying, I want to buy that water machine too, you know. So I, he's a friend now, obviously, and, and I'm, 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 I am enamored with him. Do you remain friends with a lot of your clients? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I yeah, feel like you have a great relationship with a lot. I mean, you have had a lot of cool clients. I've covered many of them. So let's go down some of your favorites. Let's talk about Pichet Ong. Ah, yeah, yeah, sure. What do you talk to Pichet all this yeah, time. Yeah, like Pichet Ong, like, like what, what brings to mind when we talk about Pichet? I know he he's, hasn't really been in New York in the past few years. No, he moved to Bethesda yeah. and he's working with Eric on these yeah, different Washington. Exactly. Yeah. And he's having a great time. He's traveling the world. He's been doing a tremendous amount of traveling. He, um, uh, you know, he, he explores food deeply. Um, he cares, travels a lot with his mom and his dad. So he's he's a good man, you know. Who are some of your other favorite clients looking back over the years? Uh, Katie Sparks. Yeah. For sure. She and I have had a long friendship since the day that we met. We became friends instantly. And she is uh, the one person who I, w- I think I could – eat her food every single day and she is has the courage of her convictions and she's a wonderful person and she's a friend and you know and by far she definitely grew you know helped me nurture my palate as I grew in this industry um, I love Anita Lowe I spent a lot of time with her we represented her at Mereji which was the first Korean sort of French hybrid restaurant that she was the chef of so she was great Doug Rodriguez we had an amazing time with him when we opened up Chakama I, he would I still say he still says you know Stephen any I don't care what restaurant it is open up that drawer of press that we got for Chakama I guarantee you that yeah. it's more placements than anyone ever got it really was you know? yeah when, when, when restaurants take over New York York, you know, it's like wildfire. It becomes yeah. this, and I think a lot of your more recent clients, like let's talk about some of the the, the Japanese and Chinese. Um, I would call them imports, like sure. Dadong and yeah. Inakari Steak. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. these are two restaurants that you represented, and like. In a curry steak, like holy shit, like that is some press for that yeah, place. Yeah, it, is, yeah. it is an amazing place, but it is, it is, well, and it's growing tremendously. You know, now we're up to nine locations, 
Um, and when we started, it was the standing steakhouse, but now people get to sit because <laughs> people are lazy. They're even getting a little lazier in Japan because they're sitting there too. Um, and it was just bringing back um, a casual way of eating steak that people hadn't done before, but it had the Japanese aesthetic to it. So the sauce that you poured on it was the soy-based steak sauce and wasabi. So and, delicious. Oh my God. Unbelievable. Really, really delicious. And it's been great. Like I said, I mean, I started working with Japanese restaurants probably about 10 years ago. Um, I went to Japan and it was kind of a magical moment for me. I was like, wow, you know, um, and I fell in love with it and I met a lot of people there and there and a lot of chefs were very enamored with it. And I kind of like, mm-hmm. again, right place, right time. It kind of exploded. And about five years ago, um, the there was an influx of Japanese brands that started to open up in the U.S., especially in New York. And our first one in that way was Tempura Matsui, mm-hmm. which is one of my pride and joys. I have, um, uh, I just, you know, was so blessed to be part of that restaurant and to work with Matsui-san before he passed away. No, it was such a sad yeah, story it was that very he passed sad. away. Yeah. It, was like, it was like a omakase for tempura. And yeah. It's something that still we've there. never really seen. It's still there. Yeah. I, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, so. it's still there. Um, but something, right, that New York had never really seen yeah. before. And it was uh, it was a real passion project. And then that led into Otoya. Otoya, uh, U.S., owned Tempura Matsui. So we did work with them. And that is a great casual, home-style Japanese restaurant. Restaurant, which was really wonderful, and that's and that's been great. And then that led into Sushi Ginza Onodera, which obviously has two Michelin stars now, and began was and, and and sort of like the pinnacle of sushi restaurants. And then that led into you know EAK Ramen and um, and Ichiran, and now you know we're doing some work for Apudo. I'm on the board of the Gohan Society, which is brilliant, and we're doing a, a great gala on October 10th um, at the Meredith Building downtown. GohanSociety.org. Go by. Tickets. Can you get into Ichiran <laughs> in Williamsburg? I, I've not tried to go because I you just can. I've waited in line in Tokyo and that's cool, but like I don't really want to wait in line in Williamsburg. I a met a guy who I met a, a, a person who was going to um, potentially do a, a ramen restaurant here, and and now we're so, we're flooded with ramen restaurants, as you know. I don't have to tell you that there's um, almost one on every corner. And I said all you've got to do to get a lot of press and attention is bring with you a vending machine. Man, it's. It markets itself for oh, sure. Exactly. Yeah. Bring it. It'll whatever it costs you to have it made in Japan and ship over, you will get back. Let's talk about in general though, like really what makes a hot restaurant in New York in twenty eighteen? I feel like there's probably a playbook. I know you probably won't spill all the secrets, but what what really compels this like kind of fusion of press and social media and word of mouth and great Yelp reviews, they all come together. Inakari Steak is a great example. Yeah. We're having it now. We're seeing that moment. We just opened a Da Indian canteen with our uh, with Rani Mazumdar and Chintan Pandya, who own Rahi down in the West Village. And obviously there's, there over the last couple of years, there's been a little bit of a wave of modern Indian food hitting the city, which I think is great because Indian food has been one of those, rest, those um, cuisines that people... Never that some people just can't grasp onto, but now that chefs like Chintan are making it accessible to people and 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 giving it a different level of flavor, and it's happening in a few different restaurants as well. There's Pondicherry, and obviously Babuji had so these something. flavors, like right. these South Asian flavors, you're feeling are really becoming. I think they're hot. very popular, and now we have a Da which opened up on a faceless Thompson Avenue in Long Island City, right across the street from LaGuardia Community College, and we just got a beautiful piece on. 
on Grub Street from a journalist who said that this may very well be the best Indian restaurant to open in New York. So I think that what has to happen is that first you need the story and you need the focus on what it is that you're doing. Then you need the person to fall in love. Mm. You need to find the person who's going to fall in love with it. And then that person is going to do all the work for you. So you really have to execute on your promise. Once they you sit do. down and have that, that meal, yeah. they fall in love and they evangelize. Right. What about this idea of like being first, like being cool and having like that first post or that first social media plug? Uh, you mean from the influ- from the yeah, side of the journalist? Yeah, or just anyone in general. I feel like that kind of drives a restaurant when you have like – like look at like Hanoi House in, in yeah, East Village. Yeah, yeah. Great place. But I feel like there was like a, a moment where like every food journalist in New York was there doing their gram and like that that's made that place really big. Right. And then we have this magical phrase. It's called follow-up. And and a lot of people think of us as very momentary, unfortunately, and we try to sell our services for as long of a period of time as possible. You know, I mean – so – um, a lot of people don't realize what's in the follow-up and they may stay hot or busy for a year or 18 months or two years. But eventually at that time, they're going to call me or somebody like me and they're going to say, OK, you know, we need to get back into the swing of the press. We need to get back into the swing of things because we've kind of lost our mojo. And that's what I, I think that that some people are very short-sighted about when it comes to PR, that they only think of it as an opening, opening. and they don't think of it and as a long uh, journey. And it's a really good publicist who can take that story and keep that story going and make that thread longer and longer and longer. And you need the help of your client, of course. They have to be willing to play along. But that's what happens a lot. And, um, and I think that the initial hotness is great. But mm-hmm. we know what happens. Fires yeah. don't die down. There's a new hotness. I think right. it's changed in this nuanced approach to PR is really fascinating to me because I think when I was starting to cover restaurants in the early 2000s, it was all about the hot opening and it was all about the hot party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I remember there used to be like so many cool restaurant parties and they were like legitimately cool. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not getting invited to them. But are there <laughs> are, like what happened to the cool restaurant opening falling party? Falling off those lists. Huh? I guess I've fallen off the list. Or, but like are they happening anymore? Like I feel like it's changed dramatically. Well, it just happened to the Playboy Club, right? They just had a hot a hot opening. So I'm um, so when it's play- you know, and when a place is like that, then it needs that party. It needs that excitement. We're going to be doing one very soon at our restaurant Zao, which is the fishing restaurant from Japan, where diners catch their own fish, and that's going to be a party that people are going to want to go to. Such a to, sensation in you Tokyo, know? by the way. Yes, it's unbelievable, yeah. and that's and that's going to be a, a media dinner, so to speak, because yeah. we can't really do past hors d'oeuvres that way. But <laughs> that's the party that people want to go to. When I reopened Tavern on the Green, which was probably about five years ago, people came up to me. I People came up to me during the party. They said, parties like this are why I live in New York City. And to me, that was the sign of a successful party. But back in the day, we all used to go to each other's parties. You know, the yeah. industry has become a little segregated yeah. in some ways. And, and fragmented, uh, yeah. And fra- very fragmented. And um and we don't all get invited to each other's events. And I kind of think that's a shame because I miss that. we're Some all friends. in the same business. Why shouldn't we yeah. all support a new restaurant that's opening? I'm not trying to steal somebody else's client, yeah. and I hope that somebody's not trying to steal mine. But who talks better than us? Did you work at Tavern on the Green with Jeremiah Tower? Where yes. You cross- Oh, my God. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. Wait, how? Like, was the documentary accurate? I didn't even see it. <laughs> just like war I, scars. It, the funny thing is that I that um, 
when I worked at Arizona 206, which is where I was a waiter in 1987 to 1990, the original chef, Brendan Walsh, had worked at Stars, And he obviously had talked a lot about Jeremiah Tower. So I knew of Jeremiah Tower. And when the owner of Tavern called me and said, Jeremiah Tower wants to be the chef of Tavern on the Green, I said, are you fucking kidding me? That's amazing. Yeah. That's the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. That's uh, that's. I, I don't even know what to say. Um, and then I sat with him and I said, you know, why do you want to – why do you want the job? You know, why do you want to do this? And, of course, I said, you know, I respect and tremendous admiration, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, he said, I'm bored. In Mexico, he was yeah. living like – He living said, in this I'm, cool I'm bored. And I huh. can't think of a better way to get my, you know, platform back than to do it here. And spoiler then, alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I then, after that, I, I always say the same thing, that I, after that, the only word that Jeremiah Tower ever said to me was no. I would say, hey, Jeremiah, so-and-so wants to do it. No. Hey, Jeremiah, no, no. I was like, what happened to I'm getting my platform back? So yeah. it was not what I would call the um, easiest relationship to navigate. Yeah, the documentary really gets into it. Um, there's probably a lot more questions that come from it than answers. I yeah. highly recommend watching it. But let- they didn't let me be interviewed for it. It was very funny because the producer said to me, "You, we, you're the publicist. We really need for you to be interviewed." And then they never, you know, they never, never, never. <laughs> wow, that's surprising. They never came back because zero point zero. They're pretty. Open I was like, "Where's about- my contract now?" <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's, it's good. But let's talk about Arizona 206 because it sure. seems for fans of um, American Psycho that the restaurant <laughs> Dorcia, which is um, fictionalized in that restaurant in that in that book and in that movie, is like and the musical. hot and musical that bombed, <laughs> <Bam>. <laughs> absolutely bombed. Um, let's talk about what it was like to work at the hottest restaurant in New York yeah. in the late 80s. It was it was great. Um, my favorite Arizona 206 story is, and it's not my favorite story, but it's a good story, is as a server, I poisoned Mike, Mike Nichols. And, you know, I was one of those servers that never wrote anything down because I kind of felt like I would remember, oh, Matt's wearing a rust shirt and he's having the venison black bean chili and he's having the guy in the blue shirts having the chili relleno. So and then we used to have these things called PLUs. You know, you had a number that was attached to every item. And I'll never forget it was the night that we got the three-star review from Brian Miller, was the restaurant critic, um, and Mike Nichols and Diane Sawyer came to the restaurant for dinner. And I now know that Mike Nichols was, he's passed away now, rest in peace, was deathly allergic to shellfish. So he ordered barbecue foie gras, which had a number very close to the cornmeal-crusted oysters. (laughs) So I, you know, sleepwalking through ordered him cornmeal crusted oysters. And cornmeal crusted oysters do not look like oysters. That's my and and or foie gras. So this was my my uh my defense was that well they came in little oyster shells. <laughs> Did you not realize that maybe they'd gotten the wrong dish? And I'll never forget they ordered a bottle of Opus One. Opus oh my One. Gosh. Big wine. Big, big yeah. wine. Um the era. Wow. and then when we found out that and he said and he literally said, These are delicious. What are they? I said, Well those are your 
cornmeal crusted oysters. And he was like, <gasps> he went pale. And I said, oh my God, there's going to be an expose on me on 2020 or something, <laughs> Diane Sawyer. My career, whatever career I have is now over completely. He went down to the bathroom. Oh my God, it was a disaster. Got rid of it. Uh, it, it was, but that was, um, but that was a sign of Arizona to six. And I mean, it was uh, obviously a tremendous amount of celebrities, but there were three restaurants on that block that were kind of aligned together, Yellow Fingers, Contrapunto, Arizona 206, Arizona Cafe. And it was the first Southwestern restaurant in New York City. And it brought a new flavor to people's dining. And it was a 50-seat restaurant, took no reservations. Wow, so no reservations for that one. At the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Then eventually it went into reservations. um, And it was, you know, it was the uh, dry, what they used to say called dry dock country because there was a savings bank at that time called Dry Dock. And they used to call the Upper East Side Dry Dock Country. And Cinema 1, 2, and 3 were like the hot movie theaters, you know? It was a great moment. It was the Bloomingdale's era, Studio Uh, 54 Days. Oh, man. It was awesome. Like, were you working long shifts and then just going out after it? Pretty much. Just a big party? Big parties. I mean, we worked long shifts, but they weren't, it was the Upper East Side. And there wasn't really a Balthazar. There wasn't that downtown scene going on in the restaurant world at that time. So that was really the spot. And then, so we would get out probably by 11 or 12. It was never really a late thing. And then, yeah, we were waiters. So we went out and took the money that was in our pocket and spent it Call on, the guy. you know, <laughs> yeah, spent it on illicit activities and then yeah. uh, went back to work the next day. Do you have a favorite era of the New York restaurant scene in the, over the past couple decades? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, I like, um, do I have a favorite era? I think that I... I kind of liked the beginning of when we first started our business, which was 1996. I think I liked it then because there wasn't as much competition. I used to say that at that time when Williamsburg started to become a hot restaurant scene, I used to say, you know, when I started my business, the only reason why you went to Williamsburg was to go to Peter Luger or buy round matzah. <laughs> you know, you didn't go there for like a hot restaurant. So you were kind of able to explore and experience and hop more. And, you know, so I liked that time The um, between like 96 six to like the there early was like 2000s. real money too in the game yeah, you know? yeah. and that leads to my next question like in the early late 90s there was like real money like margins were healthy yeah and now restaurants are struggling in new york because the margins are razor thin yes they really are and about to get thinner and because of the real estate is a huge part of it my last question to cl- to close is really how can restaurants survive in this era in new york city specifically when um, landlords are charging astronomical rates, diners are fickle as ever. Diners have always been fickle, but they're as fickle as ever now. Yeah. And there's just a lot of choices out there with delivery, Blue uh-huh. Apron. Sure. People are cooking more at home. I read those headlines. It's yeah. great for taste, not great for restaurants. Right, right, so right. So there's all these, like, this storm is brewing, and it's causing, like, neighborhood restaurants to close every single week. I know. It's a, it's a problem. And um, I've, you know, one of my longest clients has been the Ali Cart Restaurant Group, literally. I've represented them for like 20 years and Carmine's and Virgil's and Jeffrey Bank, who's the CEO, always talks to me about these kinds of things and and, and about how thin the margins are and about what how what they do to kind of not cut costs but give value to people. And I think that like Carmine's is such a great formula. It just works so beautifully. Um, and, uh, and I think that it's very hard and that's why it's a business that's based on passion. And you have to have a real passion for the hospitality industry. The margins were always lean, always. But 
if you do it right, you really can uh, really can succeed. And you have to keep your guests coming back. And this is back to what I said before about keeping the story going, you know, keeping the mystery alive, uh, constantly updating, not to do something outside of your box, but changing the menu or never changing the menu yeah, so that point. people come back all the time. I have a restaurant that's in my building, Nobita, where I live, and I go there when I'm not working a lot of the time, and I have one dish, rigatoni with olives and tuna, and it's delicious. And I have that one dish, and I think that there's a lot to be said for that. That's great. I just want to actually close with one last question. Your two or three favorite New York City restaurants that are not clients. Just like let's um, where should we be going? Well, you know, I go where my I go where a lot of my friends cook, where what I really like. But um and in my neighborhood I, I go to Barbunya a lot. I, I love it. I think Ahmed Zora is a great chef, and, and he does delicious food, and the bread from the taboon is just delicious. I I, I love it. Um uh, what else do I, I so it's so interesting because I go I'll walk out of here and I'll think about 20 places but I go because I've spent so much time with my clients I go I don't go a lot I go to the theater a lot so I sort of ha- park myself at the bar at Marseille um, because I think that they do a great job obviously it's the same ownership and I, I you know full disclosure I worked with them in the past over years but I've been in this business for 22 years so it's hard to find a restaurant or Marseille is like a, cla- like a good go to yeah, post so theater I go, yeah. I, yeah it's great it's great for theater um, I like um, uh, what is does I, those are the ones that yeah. I, I kind of go to. It's kind of uh, you know it's interesting. I like um, I like Union Square Cafe. Yeah, the new one's good. Yeah, it's really good. I, I, I like go it. there. I, I like their chicken dishes. Is yeah. The, oh, I'm, I'm addicted to the egg sandwiches at Daily Provision. Have oh. you ever had the egg sandwiches no, at Daily I Provision? Made it over there yet. They're perfect. They're Love perfect. It. I'm a, I was get kind of addicted to those. But you know, it's kind of kind of like on my path. You know, <laughs> yeah. so um, I used to like Scott Conan's restaurant, Fausto, that was in the neighborhood. Was it Fausto? No, what was the name? Fausto's Fus- in Brooklyn. Fusco. Fusco, yeah. Is that what it was called? Um, that was in my neighborhood. I used to go there a lot. Um, you know, I go I go to Ivan's for ramen. Right on. You know, obviously, you know, I, I, love, I love Ivan and I love Ivan's ramen. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I think that it's quite delicious. So I eat a lot of sushi and a lot of uh, – tori. I like tori, uh, yakitori, so I yeah, get tori, tori shin a lot. You know, I like going that's there. That's a good post-theater one too. I like yeah. One. Yeah, yeah very, great. very, very good. So yeah, so that's what I do. Steve, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Oh my God, it's a pleasure to talk to you as well. It's so much fun to sort of rap about the business. Thank you. Taste podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>